Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Dr. Carol Francis Talk Radio Show. Let's make life happen together with authors, scientists, researchers, both inside the box and outside the box of understanding so that you can live a life full of your success, curiosity, enjoyment, happiness, and richness of life in every respect. Let's go beyond our limits and let's help others go beyond their limits as well. Welcome. One of the limits we need to go beyond today is dealing with the drought that we're suffering here in Southern California, and that limit is affecting everybody from residents to commerce to hikers. I mean, it's affecting those that can't speak, can't hear this program, the plants, the animals, the insects. And it's absolutely imperative that we come to terms with what's happening with the drought, what we need to do about that, and all the associated components of that. And to help us think this through, we have from the peninsula, the Palisades Peninsula Land Conservancy, which is also going to be called PVPLC on the show. We have Dr. Alan Franz, who is a professor of anthropology and an environmental anthropologist. And we have Chris Sarabia, who is, I hope I'm saying that right, is a stewardship of the, a stewardship manager for the Palisades. Uh, um, Peninsula Land Conservancy. Welcome both of you to the program. I am thrilled to have you here. Thank you for participating in the dialogue. Thank you, Carol. Thanks for having us. Okay, good. You know, um, I guess you're both going to be representing PVPLC, the Palos Verdes Peninsula Land Conservancy, and their definite attempt to help the community of the Palos Verdes Peninsula. But you're also going to be representing other conservancies that are trying desperately to save land from further development or harm, um, as well as the residents that surround or um, are affected by these uh, wonderful places that protect land. So what are both of your roles in Palos Verdes Land Conservancy, and what are your passions involved in that conservancy? Dr. Alan Franz, can you kind of address that? Well, I'm on the board of uh, directors of the Conservancy, and I have been for over 20 years. And I got into it because I love open space. I've always lived near at least uh, patches of open space. And uh, I'm older now and see open spaces disappearing. So that's one angle of importance. And another is uh, the issue of biological diversity and preserving uh, the opportunity for life for the creatures we share the planet with. Beautifully said. Chris Saravia? Um, well, uh, my role with the uh, Land Conservancy is uh, the stewardship manager, like you mentioned, and um, I implement all the restoration activities uh, and uh, land management activities on the peninsula. And my passion is, uh, you know, same, same as Alan, uh, you know, enjoying open space, enjoying nature. I grew up in Los Angeles, um, so it's, it's a little harder to find that, but we have our little niches uh, throughout the county, and, and growing up um, in Los Angeles, uh, you know, I, I found that passion for, for enjoying these places, and now um, I have the opportunity to, to save them and um, restore them to, to a better um, place and time. Okay, beautifully said. Now, you at uh, PVPLC, both of you offer courses, and in our um, collection of questions from the community, 
one thing that was really interesting is about 50% of the people we talked with didn't even know there was a PV, that there was a land conservancy, that they thought most of the lands that were open were either owned by developers that hadn't yet developed their land or uh, was owned by the cities, the principalities. And they were surprised to find out about a conservancy. About half of the people that were in this community. So educate that half as to what PVPLC offers in terms of courses and information and opportunities to enjoy the open space. Dr. Allen. Okay, I'll take a stab at that. Our organization was actually founded uh, primarily by a gentleman by the name of William Ayler, uh, who p pulled together a group of associates who saw open space disappearing and wanted to do something about that. And all across the state and across the country and increasingly beyond, uh, people are living longer and seeing open spaces disappear and realizing the value of those open spaces, both for our aesthetic uh, appreciation, but also for very practical reasons. Uh, we need open space for our psychological well-being. We also need open space for things like purifying water when it rains and soaks into the ground. Natural habitats are sponges that can absorb and purify water. They preserve biological diversity, the range of plants and animals and other creatures that we share the planet with, many of which are many of which, let me put it this way, deserve to be protected not just on their own merits but also because many of them are beneficial to us in a range of ways from contributing to the genetic diversity of our food supply to pharmaceuticals to fibers and other resources. So it's a good idea for us uh, both philosophically and pragmatically to preserve open space and uh, opportunities for uh, continuing uh, living for other creatures. And I'll kick it over to Chris to add on that. Um, yeah, so what we do is... Sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. We do <laughs> Take offer, it away. Uh, uh, well, uh, continuing on what Alan said, we, we offer a variety of opportunities for people to uh, come out and enjoy and educate um, themselves uh, Within the peninsula, um, we have a variety of uh, educational programs for different students throughout the, the county, as well as uh, research programs with interns, um, uh, volunteer uh, programs where we have uh, wildlife tracking or programs where we, we have people uh, watch over the lands for us. We educate them about uh, the different components going on. Um, on those lands, uh, ecologically, um, and also uh, we, we have a variety of programs uh, that that encompass education and enjoyment of uh, of those areas. Yeah, I would just piggyback okay. on that too. I'm sorry if Go I could it. add just a little bit. Uh, we do own some acreage on the peninsula. Most of the land that we manage, that Chris manages is land that belongs to local cities, and the cities have recognized the value of what we do. The citizens in the area may not uh, be aware that we're managing it for the cities and that the, the lands are there uh, because of decisions made by the city councils and city staff, but the, the cities uh, have uh, for years been working with us 
for the preservation of these open spaces, and they are beneficial to the community in a variety of ways, uh, not the least of which, from the city's point of view, is that they increase property values. Uh, living near open space can increase property values by an average of 25 or 30 percent for people that live within a mile or two of natural open space. So it adds to the aesthetics and the uh, psychological ease as well as the pocketbook of homeowners and of the, the city. So a million questions start coming into mind, and one of them is, is that so the Conservancy owns 360 acres of open space land that's not developed, and in addition to that, how much land are they actually responsible for or tending to? You want to take that, Chris? Um, so we are managing over 1,600 acres of open space uh, on the wow. peninsula, and uh, that that spans across uh, three cities: uh, San Pedro, uh, Rolling Hills Estates, and Rancho Palos Verdes. So I do remember in the day, because I've been around for a very long time on the peninsula, when developers were, were very actively trying to solicit the. Buying property from the different different principalities, and how do you how do you convince the cities to not sell land that otherwise might increase their budgetary opportunities? <laughs> how do you convince them? Well, the cities can earn money by converting open space to commercial uses, but they also gain revenues by enhancing property values as they exist. And in many areas around the peninsula, uh, just as an example in Portuguese Bend, development comes with hazards. We live in an area where uh, landslides, mudslides, floods, various other sorts of uh, unpleasant events can occur. Uh, we are bookended on the south and north by earthquake faults, although they're relatively minor ones. Uh, so there are perils uh, in the development process and we provide an alternative. We do also work with private property owners as well as with the city. So much of the land that we manage and which is now parkland of the city was private land 10 or 20 years ago, and we stepped in and worked with property owners and with the cities to provide uh, a, a format for a, a willing sale of lands using uh, a combination of federal, state, and local funding sources, as well as funds that we raise from our supporters to acquire the land, prevent its development, and preserve it for present and future generations to enjoy. Well, let's talk about some of that preservation. We are facing a drought. We are in, we're not facing, we are in, we're in a drought. And water is scarce and it's valuable and I know that we're trying to avoid fracking, and yet, you know, the state still allows water to be used to open up oil areas and hopefully not natural gas. But we have got to deal with the water issues. And I know that uh, going brown is the new green motto for residents is very relevant. How is that affecting the land that the Conservancy is trying to protect? Well, Chris, you're in charge of managing the resources. You want to take a first stab at that? Well, um, we're actually a little lucky because uh, the plants that, that we use for preservation and restoration on the peninsula are actually California native plants. Um, so these plants are 
adapted to the Mediterranean climate we're at, um, which is adapted to the drought. Uh, so it's, it hasn't been as hard for us to, to deal with the drought, uh, although it is still a, a hurdle for us to keep the plant uh, going and alive. Yeah, we yeah, live in an area. You offer a water conservation strategies class. What exactly from that can you tell listeners about what strategies they can use for their residential property? And um, okay, Chris. Hi, Chris. Whoops. Did we lose him? I just lost him. <laughs> it no. looks like I did. It looks like I just lost him. Okay, he'll call okay, back. Well, Chris, go ahead and call back. Hopefully, and, he'll call but, back. <laughs> what do you think, Dr. Allen and friends, dealing with the drought and dealing with the different water conservation strategies? Well, what there are a whole variety of things. Do? Local water companies have uh, a number of uh, tools to help us better understand how we can conserve water in our households and businesses. But our focus is on landscapes. And we we really do, as Chris alluded to uh support the use of native plants. They've been here for thousands of years and have had a chance to adapt to the, uh, the soil, the climate, the, the various environmental conditions that impinge upon them, and they've survived and done well. Uh, for better or worse, many people who've moved to the area have brought plants with them from elsewhere, and historically, commercial nurseries have tended to stock what we might think of as sort of generic uh, McDonald's and Starbucks sorts of uh, plants <laughs> that are in many cases uh, water hogs that, that are not very good for conserving water. So what we try and do is encourage people to consider native plants because, again, they are adapted to comparatively dry conditions and have survived many, many droughts over the millennia. So they are a good place to start, and there are a number of benefits to that. Uh, both in terms of saving water, uh, needing fewer soil amendments, fertilizers, and things like that as well. And they provide habitat for native animals, for butterflies and bugs and birds and those other mm-hmm. creatures that most people like to see around. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Have, have we gotten Chris back? What would you add to that list in terms of the class that you teach on water conservation strategies that help the residents be able to care of their land and their plants and insects that you know, depend on their land. What do you also recommend in that course? Um, well, we recommend an integrated uh, approach to this. Um, the native plants are just a small part of uh, this design approach that that we talk about. Um, you know, we what we do is we, we teach people that uh, – to understand where the water is coming from that they're using on irrigation and to understand that uh, about 50% of residential water is used in irrigation. So by switching to native plants, uh, they cut a lot of that use uh, back. But we also want them to to take uh, uh, everything into consideration, including their soils, uh, the different components of their landscape, so we we uh, talk about different um, uh, strategies such as drip irrigation, which you know can cut uh, use of water maybe 60% uh, less than your typical sprinklers. Um, we talk about gray water, which you know takes an even more more approach into the home. So just taking 
the whole the holistic uh, view of one's home and one's environment um, when when uh, taking uh, you know the this sustainability idea into consideration. And, and so to kind of delineate some of that, can you describe how a homeowner um, or apartment owner, anything of that sort, can access gray water or do the drip irrigation you mentioned or even what type of sprinklers are really actually considered efficient? So actually, uh, nowadays, most companies have put out um, a, some type of efficient uh, nozzle that can be uh uh, added to your sprinkler uh, bibs. Um, so what they do is they they actually they've learned to match up the water delivery uh, to to the amount of absorption by typical soils. So you see a reduction in, in water use out on your lawn or on your uh, different plants. Um, you see this about thirty percent reduction, which um, the nozzles. Um, basically are saving you more water, you're having less runoff, and your plants are actually using the water that's being uh, sprayed on them. And There are also opportunities to computerize yard maintenance uh, to more efficiently use water and to keep your plants in optimum health. There are devices that can monitor soil moisture, and prevent you from overwatering or underwatering, can time watering so that it is early in the morning or late in the afternoon, evening, when you're going to have less evaporation that can monitor wind conditions, for example, because particularly for people that are spraying, uh, it doesn't do nearly as much good to spray in high wind as it does when it's calmer. So there are a whole slew of things that can be done and which can actually be automated, uh, depending on how intensively people want to get engaged in this. That's very reasonable. And how do they access gray water? So gray water is uh, water from showers, baths, washing machines, and uh, bathroom sinks. Uh, currently, kitchen sinks aren't uh, legal in California, but they are in other states. Um, so we, we actually do work with other groups that teach gray water design uh, gray water action um, being one of them, and uh, there, there's uh, pretty uh, small workshops about an hour and a half that show you how to access specifically your washer machine water and how to use that properly and how to design a washer machine system so that you're you basically uh, rather than sending this water down to your sewer drain, um, you're redirecting it out into your landscape. So you're able to water your native plants or fruit trees or uh, any other type of plant. Um, you're able to water it with this water that um, is still usable. You're, you know, we got to remember that uh, uh, plants don't need the same uh, clean water that humans do. So clean um, water, and you're able to maintain uh, a nice, lush, green uh, food forest or native plant garden um, without. Uh, using any extra water. So this requires like a specialized plumbing process or is there some intermediate step that residents can take? It, it is a, it's a basic uh, plumbing um, diversion from your, you know, 
I'm specifically talking about uh, the laundry machine, and it's actually called the laundry to landscape system. And you're uh, you're you know you're using some one inch PVC, um, and you're directing it outside, and using some uh, flexible poly tubing um, to water plants. And we teach uh, uh, with, with this group Greywater Action. We teach workshops. Um, you know uh, that basically we have all types of age groups and demographics coming out, and you go home. Um, with the capabilities of installing one of these systems. So it's it's a fairly simple system that almost anyone who's do-it-yourselfer um, is able to install. That sounds great. And then the drip irrigation is something else that you mentioned in your class on water conservation. What is what is that exactly entail, and where is that helpful? So um, we've been using a lot of drip systems in, in the restoration area out on the preserves um and what it is is it's a, a drip system is basically a perforated pipe that is slowly dripping water wherever that perforation is so uh what we do is we're directing it straight onto the plant we're minimizing uh, evaporation we're using less water and um it's it's a fairly simple system uh that you can actually convert your old sprinklers uh, to a drip system with these very simple kits that are available at most hardware stores. So we, we're actually converting a lot of our old sprinkler systems to drip systems um, just to be more efficient, save more water, I, actually to also uh, uh, be in, uh, in, in the, what would you say, most agencies aren't allowing sprinkling sprinkler systems to be used anymore um, on certain days and hours. Water agencies, that is. So we're we're trying uh, our best to to be uh, on the same page with them. Just to point out one additional detail uh, as far as that goes, Carol. Um, Chris has been talking about drip irrigation systems, and one of the real virtues there. As he noted, is that you can put the water right where your plant is, whereas spray systems do broadcast water and in doing so uh, promote weed growth. So if you want to have greater control over the plants that grow in your yard or any land that you manage, uh, drip systems really give you an, an edge. They take a little elbow grease or investment up front to install the system, but once it's installed, it does a much better job and makes it easier for you to manage the landscape and uh, maintain the plants that you want without supporting at the same time plants that you don't want. And we've actually seen that benefit uh, right away where we don't have as many weeds coming up in areas that that uh, we're, we aren't supposed to be watering, but you know, due to how sprinklers are set up, um, they water areas that uh, have weed seeds in them. So. Our, our maintenance costs and time has uh, greatly been decreased, which is great for us. Oh, absolutely. It should change the chain, right? <laughs> oh, my gosh. That's, really, that's a really fascinating uh, element of it. Okay, so we heard one of the um, residents that we interviewed of um, the group that did know about PVLC, and they said that they had been a resident for about 12 years and had actively tried to make sure that they tended not only to their particular land, but also to the um, the surrounding land conservancy just out of 
respect, you know, for the plants and such. But they had a concern that if, as they were cutting back on watering their own land and allowing their land to become more brown, and that they were watching the conservancy uh, properties around their land also becoming much more fragile biohazard. And they were wondering, you know, what did they do about that? How did they interface with PD, PLC to be able to deal with that in terms of the biohazard and also in terms of preserving the soil, which we haven't yet talked about? Well, the, um, the actually the county of L.A. has uh, things called fuel modification zones. So they've taken into account areas that are a little more prone for, for fire hazards, a little more sensitive. Um, so we work with uh, the, the county fire department and other agencies to make sure that the, these zones that would um, be a potential hazard for homes in the area, we make sure that these areas are, are free of, of brush that is more likely to burn. So every year... Um, you may see people out there uh, mowing um, different different areas uh, behind homes, uh, uh, slopes specifically. So we have a lot of slopes out on the peninsula. So we go out there and mow. And an interesting approach that has also been taken uh, recently is goats. You, br- you bring out goats, um, and you might see these around, uh, and the goats actually um, go out there and eat this brush, uh, dry brush, annual grasses, uh, different weeds um, and turn that into some nice fertilizer. But they also stomp some, some of this stuff down and and minimize that hazard. So, uh, you know, we, we are out there every year and we're always planning um, for that fuel modifi- modification plan um, to, be, to be implemented. Understanding the plants is also an important part of the process. There are some plants that are more flammable than others. So, for example, uh, some of our uh, sages have a lot of resins that make them a bit more flammable, and we tend to, we we try to use good judgment in sensitive areas. Uh, the plants themselves have uh, fire prevention and and uh, water conservation strategies. So, some of them, like lemonade berry, are more reflective, so they don't absorb as much heat. Some are paler colored, so they don't warm up as much from the sun. Um, a number of different species, like our Encelia, do go dormant, so they may look like they're dead and just fuel waiting to burn, but they are still alive, just waiting for some water. And uh, in, our, in managing the lands that are under our responsibility, uh, Chris and the rest of our crews try to plan plant pallets that are appropriate to the context uh, in terms of sun exposure and uh, the proximity to uh, homes and other other resources that we want to make sure to protect. Mm-hmm. So this might be the right time to ask uh, another question from another person we surveyed that um, expressed a complete concern about their neighborhood being very vulnerable to fire hazards that or potentially going to emanate from their canyon or the hillside that they were not able to tend to because it wasn't their land. And and they were very concerned the shrub looked very potentially fire hazardous and they were, you know, warned by their own um, fire marshals to remove that type of shrubbery from their own land. 
and here they are looking over the property land to this open space. Now, I don't know if that open space is a preserved or if it's part of the city, because um, I don't know where that particular individual lives, but such a reasonable concern, even though you're saying you have these types of plants, that fire hazards may emanate from these preserved lands. And, the you know, the PVP Land Conservancy is kind of unique in that every, almost every part of the parcel of the land that you guys protect is right next to your residence. And with some other conservancies, don't have that complication. <laughs> so... What, what what do you recommend to these type of uh, neighborhoods or these type of residents? Well, we are in a suburban and urban region, so there's no getting away from the fact that we, we have neighbors, and we have structures on many of the properties that we manage as well. So we're concerned both for our own resources as well as for our neighbors. Uh, but there's only so much we can do. Uh, next to a canyon, fires tend to burn uphill, and uh, for better or worse, when some neighborhoods were laid out, uh, home sites were selected for criteria like view rather than for long-term fire safety. Uh, we we do the best that we can to manage the land in a safe way. We do work with the fire marshals in our area, as Chris alluded to previously, and we meet with them every year. Uh, on, on all of our major properties, and we comply with all of their uh, requirements. And we we also invite the the public to to talk with us if there is a concern, and we can explain um, you know the situation on a on a case by case scenario. Um, I try my best to work closely with the homeowners uh, that are adjacent to the the properties we manage um, to try to find that right balance. So that uh, we have habitat, we have uh, you know defensible space, um, and and the neighbors are happy and at least understand uh, you know the different the different uh, plants that are there and how fire prone they are. Um, we we've been planting uh, certain cactus out on on the sites that don't catch fire very easily, um, but they are great. For, for habitat value on, on those uh, south-facing slopes. I, well, how about, I, I, when we move on to mudslides and uh, potential geological shifts that might happen due to the drought and due to changes, um, there's, there's a situation that's caused by the land becoming too dry. What is that called, and how is that identified, and what's happening in Palos Verdes along that line? Oh, you want to take that, Chris? Or? <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to open the well, we, we have, for the most part, our soils are what are called expansive clays. So they, they act like sponges and expand when it rains. When it dries out, they crack and become dry and can become unstable. Areas like the Portuguese Bend landslide uh, have suffered in, in part because of that, as well as some more complex issues that we don't need to get into here. Um, but soils also can become hydrophobic after a fire, uh, which creates a, a different set of issues and, and can contribute to mudslides and other problems. When there's a fire, the chemistry of the soil can be changed in ways that make it harder for water to be absorbed. And that 
makes water run off slopes faster and cause erosion faster and cre increase the probability of mudslides uh, down slope. So there, there are a, there's a menu of, of hazards that we have to navigate in, in managing the lands. Uh, if we simply clear the land uh, down to the soil to prevent fire, then we're opening it up to a, again, accelerated runoff and mudslides and things like that. So we have to try and balance the the different potential hazards in a way that uh, protects our interests, the local homeowners' interests, and hopefully the habitat as well. Yes, yeah. uh, and I'll add to that. comments that. on mudslides and what's happening to the land, <laughs> the actual I soil? So, so most of these uh, areas that are prone to landslide are usually uh, as a direct result of some type of disturbance, and and so we have different things going on. It, you know, it's a, once again, it's a case by case scenario. So, uh, what we do is we go out there and we look at the situation and try to bring it back to uh, a, a, a scenario that isn't prone to landslides. So um, we use a lot of different types of uh, erosion control um, uh, types of, of technologies. Um, you know, one one that we have is uh, we, we do hydro uh, mulching, which is basically uh, we're shooting a, a slurry of, of uh, mulch out onto these bare areas that are prone to, to, to sliding um, so that uh, when it does rain, um, you're not getting the, this erosive activity going on. It's more of a slowing it and sinking it and spreading it versus it just uh, moving the soil um, very quickly. So we do that. We uh, In some areas, we've spread um, just wood chips, wood chips um, that, that are easy to get from different tree trimmers. And what that does is the same thing. It, it, it slows this water down, it, it lets it um, be absorbed, and it doesn't uh, move as quickly as it would uh, with just straight bare ground. Um, and and we have a variety of other technologies we use, um, uh, at least for uh, areas we work in, we try our best not to leave bare soil, because that tends to be the, the main factor um, in, in having some slides happen, some mudslides. Um, and, you know, when it's raining, I'm usually out and about actually just patrolling the sites and making sure I'm I'm not seeing any, uh, you know, gullies forming or channels forming because I know that I have to act quick. And we usually have all the supplies ready to go on these, uh, you know, big storm events because uh, you never know. You know, 1,600 acres is a lot to manage. So, um, we you know, we have to be ready, and we act pretty quickly um, to... to uh, remedy the the problems when when they occur. Just to uh, point out issues of scale, I'm actually calling in from Lake County up in Northern California, where over the summer 150,000 acres have burned, and it's a yep. fairly mountainous area. And up here, we're looking at uh, you know, some serious threat of uh, of mudslides and impacts on local water systems and other resources if we get a, a strong El Nino rain pattern setting up over the winter. Uh -huh. I'm so glad you brought up the uh, El Nino rain pattern. Can you describe the cycling and, and and how that, what residents can anticipate in terms of 
both as they live on the slopes of the PVC land conservancy areas and also their own lands, how that's going to be impacted, well, how they're going to be impacted by the lands that the conservancy is in charge of and how their land is going to impact the conservancy. What are, what, what's the El Nino going to do here that we need to be aware of? Well, basically, El Nino is a, a recurrent pattern in which the Pacific Ocean off our coast gets warmer, and warmer water means more evaporation, and the winds come from the west uh, off the ocean to the land, so they pick up moist, moisture air and bring it over the land, and particularly when it's forced upward or cooled, uh, it, it rains. And as long as the, the water is warmer than the land, you get more rainfall. So this is something that happens regularly. We've had rainfalls in Southern California that have dropped as much as 17 and a half inches in 24 hours and wow. caused uh, massive flooding. That, that's an extreme case. That's the, the all-time record in the state. Um, but uh, you know, bad things can happen, unfortunately. And uh, we're not expecting at this point anything that severe uh, for this coming winter, but we don't know. All we know is that the likelihood of rain is higher and it behooves us in the Land Conservancy as well as property owners to take steps to, to be prepared, both in terms of their homes and yards uh, and for, for us in terms of the properties that we manage to, to be prepared in case there is a, a serious rain event that could trigger uh, property damage and flooding and, and mudslides. You want to add to that, Chris? Go ahead. Yeah, it's, please, uh, it, it's um, you know, it, it goes into scale. Um, there's some things we can we can control and, and manage, and then there's some things that, uh, you know, it's it's out of our control. It's out of uh, something that that we can't uh, do too much about while it's going on. So those 17 inches, those sound pretty scary, um, you know, hearing about them. Um, what, what we've been doing a lot of is seeding uh, any bare areas with uh, native plant seed or grassland seed, depending on, on what's appropriate for that area, um, and in hopes that uh, we take advantage of this El Nino and um, just, uh, if we get some nice, uh, you know, normal uh, rain events um, as we move move into the winter, um, you know, these seeds will germinate and help to to slow any erosion activities, uh, to absorb, uh, you know, the rain um, as it comes down. And uh, on a smaller scale, that's that's something we can do um, very easily um, and just vegetate the area because uh, you know just the the ecology. Of the hill uh, is it's meant to uh, absorb water. The plants are there for for absorption. Yeah, by taking some of the strategies that Chris has outlined there, from planting native grasses to putting down wood chips and slurries, uh, mulch slurries like that, we can capture more of the water and get it absorbed. And then it's like a, the earth is like a bank; it, it can store that water for us. Unfortunately, one of the things that uh, tends to happen with development is we pave over a lot of surfaces, and obviously when rain falls on paved surfaces, it runs off quickly. Uh, so Los Angeles and California as a whole 
and other parts of the world are looking at ways to make uh, roadways, for example, permeable. And uh, more and more surfaces are being developed that can uh, facilitate absorption of water because not just here in California, but around the world, water is becoming increasingly scarce. Uh, we have oceans full of it, but we can't use that directly. It's not good for our plants. It's not good for us other than recreationally. So we need to uh, learn to better manage our water resources and uh, take advantage of them when they're here rather than getting rid of them as fast as we can the way that our uh, our storm drain system does. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, you're talking about the man-made um, as opposed to the natural intervention when is it a good idea for landowners or the consumers to build the string walls or have fences up that are strategically protecting the plants or the land from moving? Or when is it strategic to have a trail or a walkway that somehow stops the, the, the land from just moving down or being overly saturated? Or, but when are these man-made fences or restraining walls or walkways actually um, beneficial to um, protecting against mudslides and geological shifts? Well, water can be managed in a variety of ways on trails and other land surfaces by building things like water bars, retaining walls, and so forth, as you referred to. And Chris, I'm sure, has uh, other suggestions in mind as to ways to disperse the water rather than letting it uh, all rush together and form a, a more powerful uh, erosive force and destructive force. Right, right. Um, so, you know, we, it, it, it always goes into it depends. Uh, you know, it's a case-by-case <laughs> case scenario. Um, that's, yeah, that's my default answer. But, but uh, <laughs> well said. yeah, um, we, you know, we want to see is sometimes the problem is the solution and we want that, that water, um, we we may want that on our lands, and we may um, you know try to uh, stream it into some of this habitat so that the plants get watered, um, and that may involve some of these man-made structures such as roads, uh, drainage culverts. Um, you know, a lot of the drainage culverts on the hill actually go into the canyons uh, that that uh, are, are throughout the peninsula. Um, well, those are, those canyons are actually riparian zones um, for the most part. So we have native plants growing in there that that are adapted to growing uh, in really wet conditions during the winter. So um, you know we take that into account that that a lot of water is going to come through that that um, riparian zone, and uh, we make sure we plant accordingly and and take that to our advantage uh, to create more habitat. So, you know, in a lot of situations, these, these man-made structures, um, you know, are, are designed properly and are taken into uh, consideration when we do habitat restoration um, in the open space. Yeah, Chris okay, mentioned well, we riparian. Another individual that um, I think this question kind of pertains to what we're talking about right now. And they, uh, I'll summarize, they said that their neighborhood was worried about the impact of of some of the PVP LC trails. I know you have wonderful, I've spent many hours hiking those 20 miles of trails that you provide. Um, But this particular neighborhood was concerned that because of the 
the open space, the exposed soil, and the uh, disruption of the vegetation growing across the path that would not protect the soil. But they were actually their own land being more fragile and more likely to have a mudslide since it's on a slope. Um, and what should they do? Uh, how do they interface with you? And how, what, what did they do on their own property to protect against uh, what might happen under these um, El Nino conditions? Well, we're um, always happy to talk to our neighbors, uh, and I'll, I'll turn it over to Chris to talk about what landowners might do on their own land. Yeah, they can contact us directly uh, because, you know, every trail we have is different. Some are maintenance trails that actually have vehicles um, accessing for a variety of reasons, uh, but uh, our, our we're always working on our trails, making sure that they're sloped accordingly so they're they're not collecting water, um, that they're safe, uh, that they're accessible and usable by, by all our different user groups. So, um, you know, what we recommend to any of our, our neighbors is just talk to us. We're here to, you know, we're here uh, almost every day, what, seven days a week where um, you can contact someone and we'll happily uh, uh, work with you to solve the problem. What, 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 what is the contact place? <laughs> How do they contact you? Uh, so you can go to our, our website at pvplc.org, and there's a list of different contacts if you're trying to uh, contact someone specifically, or you can just email info at pvplc.org, and that's the best way to, to get a hold of someone, um, and we will uh, get right back to you quickly, especially if it's uh, you know if, if there's an issue of uh, erosion or some type of hazard. Um, you know, we, we definitely want to avoid any any uh, situations like those. And if there is a, uh, so is it like a specific person to contact if they're doing the plant, um, the natural plant propagation, which we spoke about earlier, or uh, the watering of their land or uh, mudslides? Are there specific people that are specialists in coming out and giving advice or helping out? Well, we have a, <laughs> go ahead. I was just putting in a plug for you, but we we do have a staff. If you, if you, Chris, are you the are you the go to person? I was trying to avoid that, but yes, uh, well, I'm the I'm <laughs> the person on the ground, um, so I'm the one uh, implementing restoration, but I'm also out there uh, having our crews do the different types of work. So the stewardship department would be um, the 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 group that um, most of the calls funneled to, and then we we um, come out and deal with it uh, as we as we can so there's a couple of us and and uh you may see me in the end you may see me at your front door or out behind your house uh in the in the open area with our our great group of guys that are you know very well trained um and uh we'll, we'll be taking care of the problem Mm-hmm. We do also okay. have a knowledgeable office staff, so many people do call into our administrative office and uh, they can give answers to a lot of questions or, or simply refer people to Chris and other members of our stewardship staff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd, I'd have to say we have a great team um, uh, in the Conservancy, including our board of directors, and we, we all care about the land and, um, mm-hmm. you know, Know know as much as possible on, on uh, every aspect of it. So, um, you know, you you may uh, get in contact with uh, someone else as well if you call that number. 
Okay, I think he's trying to get you involved in this, Alan, since he mentioned the board of directors. <laughs> 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 I don't know. There's going on. Uh, thanks, thanks for that in- information, and we will actually pass this on uh, to the people who have asked the questions as well. Um, now, the the other aspect of, you know, the Palos Verdes uh, Peninsula Land Conservancy really does uh, make a mission statement that they want to preserve undeveloped land. And they want to work in cooperation with the cities and with the property owners. And you certainly have um, expressed both of that in, in, in this conversation. So how do landowners participate with the PVPLC on a pragmatic level? What sort of things would you recommend them doing or even ask them to do, implore them to do? Uh, that would help out. Well, I mean, what what we like most is people to give us land, but that doesn't happen too much. What we have been able to do is negotiate uh, acquisitions that use funding that we raise from our local community, uh, complemented with funding from county, state, and federal grants to support uh, preservation of open space or habitat restoration. Uh, we also uh, are happy to take easements. Uh, We have easements over some parcels of land, and in the same way that, for example, utility companies may have easements to access uh, a sewer pipe or something that runs under your property, there are conservation easements in which a, a property owner retains ownership rights to the land and can sell it, but they agree not to disturb habitat and not to make certain changes to land use in order to make the land more valuable as a natural resource and as habitat for wildlife. So Chris and other members of our staff, our our broader team, are always happy to work with homeowners, uh, property owners in general, whether it's developed land with homes or undeveloped land. We are more interested in larger areas of open space than 10 square feet here and 50 square feet there. Uh, because that becomes a bit of a, a management challenge to deal with very small parcels, but something the size of a canyon or a bluff or something like that, uh, where you have a, a more substantial chunk, particularly if it connects with other open space, that's what we really like. Mm-hmm. Oh, I know I have easements on my property for you, exactly, so it's good to hear. Um, do you take developed land, and if so, I mean, do you, what do you do with developed land? Is that donated, and do you, what, what do you do if there's like a, a building or a fence or a, or a sidewalk? I mean, what do you do with the developed land in terms of working with it? Well, it depends on how it's been developed. If it's got structures on it, uh, we would we might be less interested, but there are some parcels that. Uh, can be used, for example, as interpretive centers. So we we manage a parcel of about 100 acres in the city of Los Angeles now at White Point. It has a couple of historic structures from the days when White Point was a, a military site with actually Nike missiles and 16-inch gun emplacements during World uh-huh. War II. We have used one of the buildings on that site. There are essentially two buildings. We use one of them as a, a nature interpretive center where we can hold meetings and provide education. We have displays and other activities. Uh, because that was a military site, we've had to do a great deal of uh, work in, in habitat restoration. It was 
tumbleweed mm. and fennel and arundo and other little uh, non-native noxious plants that have little or no habitat value. And Chris and other members of our stewardship team have worked for, gosh, what's it now, 15 years or so that we've been cleaning up the site and restoring habitat. So it, it still may, it's, it's never going to look like Yosemite or, or Yellowstone, uh, but it looks a heck of a lot better. It has, it's a beautiful site now with primarily native vegetation, views across the channel to Catalina and along the coast. So we're we're pretty happy the way that's turned out, despite the fact that it had been a developed parcel. Uh, mm. We were able to get funding from, uh, again, uh, county, state, and federal sources, as well as from our supporters. We just recently had our uh, White Point home tour and raised money that will go into the coffers to help us support management there. And we have a number of volunteer events where people in the community can come out and join us in doing habitat restoration work. We have fundraising events. We have educational programs at a number of our sites, including the Nature Center at White Point and the Nature Center at George F. Canyon. They're at the intersection of PV North and PV East. So we, we welcome the community to come and join us. And we have thousands of people that have not only contributed money, but have come out and donated I think we average something like at least 10,000 hours a year, don't we, Chris? Yes, yes, uh, something along those lines. And and like Alan said, we we encourage the community to come out and steward the land with us. It's you know it's essentially their backyard, and um, yeah. it's, it's a beautiful backyard. So uh, you know the more involvement we can on any level, there's so many different types of opportunities. So uh, the more involved involvement we have for the community to be stewards. Um, you know, the more we're all connected and, and the more we care and take care of it, uh, the the land. And when and if there's land that's donated, do you guys come out and evaluate whether or not the land is something you even want to have anything to do with? You know, you evaluate if there's a structure there, you evaluate if there's... Um, yeah, we, we do face sometimes some... That, go ahead. There, there are some challenges. We, we, we have to assess each potential property in terms of its its habitat value, its accessibility, both for us and for members of the public that might want to use it. We look at whether it's got uh, rare endangered species or other special features, maybe geological features that uh, have educational value or something like that. But we also have to look at uh, management costs, uh, the, the expense of doing anything from uh, the, the sorts of fire prevention uh, activities that Chris was talking about earlier uh, to just, for example, accessing water when we do habitat restoration and install uh, native plants. Typically, we need to be able to provide them a bit of water to increase their rate of survival when we, when we install them. So we grow plants in our nursery that Chris manages, and we grow, what, something like 70,000 plants a year on average. I think it may have been down a little bit the last few years because of the drought. But we grow plants specifically to transplant onto uh, parcels that we manage and to sell to the public so that they can transform their own yards. But in order to increase the, the survival rate of those plants, we do generally try to water them or give them at least a a good 
slug of water when we install them so that they'll have a, a higher likelihood of thriving. Right. Are there are there things that residents can do that are along the preserves or the lands that you're managing that are kind of like a contribution or a donation? They'll they'll do this like they'll put up a retraining a, a restraining wall or fence or something that will help the land from sliding or or help plants grow. Is there like a donation? Hey, what can we do along our property line that will help the preserve? Do you ever get those sorts of requests? You want to take that, Chris? Or? Yeah. Uh, what what they can do is actually grow some of the native plants that are uh, from the area um, on on their boundaries, um, you know, and take care of them and, and keep them alive. Um, that way, uh, there's these little hot spots for for different critters and and different species of animals to come and and use that. Um, there, you know, we we grow a variety of plants that we sell at our plant sales uh, to the public. And, you know, the public's able to go out and, and choose the best-looking ones or what's appropriate for for their boundary or if they're trying to, you know, reduce erosion or, or whatever that is. But by, by buying plants that are from the area, um, they're contributing to um, what we're trying to do, which is create habitat. You're creating small sections of habitat. Um, and if we had, you know, even a small percentage of, of the neighbors do that, um, you can imagine the, you know, what kind of, actually acreage that might add up to and and help us out. You should say a large percentage, Chris. We don't we don't want a small percentage. <laughs> we we'd like lots of people to plant oh, native plants good. and then we'd have more more butterflies, more more birds, more mm. more wildlife and mm-hmm. uh, we'd all be happier. And, and that's one reason we go ahead. Go ahead. Chris, go ahead. That's one reason we give these workshops, um, you know, with, with our different partners in the community is so that people understand that it's not that hard to do this, uh, that it's, you know, it's something fairly simple, um, and and it's it's not that hard to help out uh, the environment. Um, some of these, uh, you know, plants that are beautiful that you see that a lot of people know are, you know, the California poppy is a native plant, and it's it's beautiful. There's lupins and just... There's an array of, of wildflowers that have striking color and attract uh, all kinds of uh, cute little pollinators, um, and and they're beneficial. So there's a lot of uh, contributions uh, that those native plants make to the environment. Chris, name some more plants, or where do we go to find the list of plants that are going to be natural to our Southern California coastal lifestyle? Well, yeah, so throw uh, in some some shrubs and trees, truth too, Chris, like lemonade berry. Lemonade berry, uh, the toyon. Um, we have uh, the elderberry, which uh, is a beautiful white flower. So you can go to the pvplc.org website, and there is actually a list there that shows you, uh, you know, the the most common plants on the peninsula. Um, you can also go to calflora.org, and there's actually a, a an application there that if you type in your zip code, uh, all the plants that grow in that area will pop up. So you can look through them, look at the different uh, slope aspects they need or, or how much water they need. That way you you know what's appropriate for the location you're wanting to plant. Um, yeah. Oh, it's important you, for both, homeowners. Both Go ahead. I love I your enthusiasm. Say, Here, go for, for it. 
it's important for homeowners to to understand that it it does make a difference how much sun exposure, for example, a spot has. If they have a spot that's shady most of the day, that would best be best suited for certain kinds of plants, whereas other areas that are in full sun all day long might be better for other plants. The soil moisture in a particular area will make a difference, and there are other factors to, to take into consideration. So Chris or other members of our staff uh, and I uh, are, are anxious to spread the gospel of native plants and native habitat and we're happy to talk to people. And uh, again, uh, the website and Cal Flora, as Chris has referred to, also are great sources of information. Oh, thank you so much. This has been a, such an informative di dialogue and discussion, and I'm looking forward to letting more people know about the answers to the questions they ask, as well as just the opportunities they have to move forward in this ever-changing drought-based lifestyle that we're currently facing. Is there anything as we end our program that both of you would like to make sure to add that you haven't yet so far? Well, well, uh, we encourage everyone <laughs> to come out and uh, either to our website or physically uh, to the lands and, and enjoy um, everything that, that we have to offer, that, you know, the, the reasoning why we steward the land um, so people can enjoy it. So we encourage uh, people to get involved. Yeah, the Conservancy exists because a growing number of people appreciate open space and habitat. And for the 50% or whatever the figure was that you cited at the beginning of the interview that, uh, that aren't aware of the Land Conservancy, they, they are aware of the lands that we manage, I'm sure, and just may not know the organization behind it that makes it available. But again, we have developed a, an array of programs for monthly hikes, for educational programs. We have school programs for all the third grades on the peninsula in San Pedro and several communities beyond. Uh, so we've, we've taken the initiative to develop a, a range of different ways to reach out to the community and and help connect people to the land and establish, to, to help people recognize that we are a unique patch of real estate. That uh, I was talking about McDonald's and Starbucks uh, landscaping earlier, but every, every area on, on the planet has unique properties, and rather than just treating the earth as a, a generic thing, we should recognize and appreciate and uh, value the unique features of different landscapes in the same way that we value difference among ourselves as individuals. Oh, thank you so much for joining us, Chris. He's a stewardship manager for the California Community Thank you so much for joining us. And Dr. Alan Franz, who is a board member of California You have enlightened us and you've given us and well, thank you for the opportunity to talk with you, Carol. Oh, yeah, thanks you. for having us, Carol. Okay, take care. And everybody, you have a wonderful day. Think outside the box, inside the box, take good care of your land and yourself. Until next time. Thank you. Bye-bye. <laughs>